Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And before we dive into this very difficult, somewhat infamous <laughs> infamous passage of Scripture, um, I want to ask two preliminary questions that are very basic questions, but I think they're important questions. And so here's the first question I'm going to ask tonight. How is a sinner saved? You guys answer. How's a sinner saved? By grace. By grace. Okay. Repentance and faith, okay, so to be a Christian, you have to repent, you have to believe, it's a gift of grace, okay, it's what? Does baptism save you? It's an, it's an, it's, okay, so faith, believe, faith, repent, faith, believe, it's salvation by grace, that's how we're saved, right? Okay, would everybody agree with that? Most Christians would say, I, I've got it down, what it means to be saved. It's repent, believe, we're saved by grace, great, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Second question, a diff- more difficult question. What does authentic salvation produce in the life of a believer? Come on in, Dale. Okay, I'm hearing fruit. Okay, so fruit... I heard somebody else say works. I heard somebody else say something. Fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so you're more specific. Fruit, fruit of the Spirit. Okay. What was that? Okay, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. So an authentic Christian who's truly been saved is going to demonstrate some level or some measure of fruit and works, will we all agree upon that? Okay. Would we agree that it needs to be somewhat consistent? Will we agree that it needs to be somewhat evident? If it's not evident and it's not consistent, then we'd have to say, hmm, did true salvation take place? Now, are there different degrees and growths of people? Do, do some people have more fruit than others at certain times in their life? Yes. Okay. God, the Holy Spirit works individually on each of us in our particular growth, and our growth's all going to look different. But there's got to be some measure of fruit and some measure of works. Okay? All right. So, here's the theological truth that we're going to look at tonight in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 8. Part 1. The devastating consequences of apostasy. We've already looked time and time again, at apostasy, at falling away, at rebelling to the point where you are rejecting Christ. But here he's going to make a very, very strong warning. Okay? So, you guys have answered the question, but let's just put this in a sentence. Let's just give a theological truth. You guys have already said this. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Here's theological truth. No one is saved without genuine repentance and faith 
whereby the Holy Spirit has done an overwhelming work of grace in the life of that sinner to bring him or her from spiritual death to new life in Christ. Will we all agree with that? Hey, Jenny, come on in. Is your better other guy? Yeah, other, 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 other guy. I meant to say, I don't mean better. I, I'm an apostate already. I better be careful. Come on in, Jerry. Thank you. Okay. So, so you guys have said this tonight already. Genuine salvation is repentance, faith. The Holy Spirit's done a work of grace. We were spiritually dead. We've been brought to new life in Christ. And so let's just say this from the very beginning. If there is no repentance, is there salvation? No. 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 Okay, there's got to be repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is a turning away from sin. Now here's a deeper question, a harder question. And I want you to think about this question. Is there ever a time that the Holy Spirit withdraws His power to bring about conviction and regeneration that grants us into repentance, thus making it impossible for that person to ever be saved? It's one or the other. Is there ever a time... Okay, so let's, let's, let's just ask the question. Who is the one that brings about the, the repentance and, the, and the, the new birth? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so in order for you to repent, the Holy Spirit has to be active in that process. Is there ever a point in time where the Holy Spirit says, you are no longer at a point where I'm going to grant you repentance to bring you salvation? What? So I'm going to leave that question hanging out there because we're going to read Ephesians, Hebrews chapter 6. Well, we'll read Ephesians maybe. Uh, we won't get... So what I want us to do is I want us to read a he, a Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 8. Okay? And we are going to look at this very carefully because this a particular passage of Scripture has been used by some to say that, it's a, that, that they use this as proof that you can lose your salvation. I'm going to argue just the opposite. Okay? I don't think this has anything with losing your salvation. I think this has everything to do with apostasy. Okay? Uh, so let's read this together. Hebrews 6, verse 4. For it is impossible. Stop right there. What word is that? Impossible. For what? Let's keep reading. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned." From the very beginning of Hebrews, the writer has been using first person. We, 
us, beloved. Now, all of a sudden, he switches to a different person. Not first person, we, us. Not second person, you. He switches to third person, they, those. What does he say there in verse 4? It is impossible in the case of those. Those. He doesn't say, does he say you? Does he say us? He uses the term those. So we've got to ask the question, who are these people that he's talking about? Who's he describing in this passage of Scripture that it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance? Here's the answer. They are people who have been visible or external members of the church, confessed Christ, enjoyed the benefits of being around God's people and His blessings, but have decidedly rejected Christ. They are what we would call apostates. He's going to talk about apostates and the devastating consequences of apostasy. Now, let's make a clear distinction. Let me write two words out here and see if you think that there's the same thing. I'm going to write a pagan and I'm going to write an apostate. Are those two the same thing? A pagan and an apostate. What's the difference? A pagan has never heard a pagan has never been around church a pagan has never confessed christ a pagan is still lost they're both the one thing they both have in common is they're both lost but a pagan has never heard the gospel is living in idolatry in another religion they've never been around church on the flip side an apostate is still lost but what's the one difference they've been around church they've confessed faith in christ they've had the benefits of being around a church family which makes it scarier. Now, both are lost. If both of these die in their sin, they both will go to hell. It's a little bit easy for us to come to grips with the whole pagan idea because they have never heard. What's harder to wrap our minds around is how can people be around church, be around the Bible, be confessors of faith, and yet reject it and fall away? That's what an apostate is. And many, as I've said earlier, have argued that this text in Hebrews proves that a person can lose his or her salvation. But I believe exactly the opposite and find that this text gives the strongest definition of apostasy. So what the writer is going to do here is he's going to give us five benefits that these people have experienced in their close proximity to Jesus and in the church, but as we shall see, we're never truly saved. So let's look, first of all, at the benefits, and then we'll look at the wording. Okay? For it is impossible in the case of, here's the first one, those who have once been enlightened. That's an interesting term, isn't it? Enlightened. Does that sound like anybody had actually been saved? It could mean that they have had knowledge of the truth. They understood the facts of the gospel. 
I want you to notice what's absent in all of these definitions. Do you have any mention of words that normally accompany salvation in these words here? Just look at the words. You've got Holy Spirit, but we have to understand the word shared. Do you see anything about regeneration? Anything about salvation? Anything about justification? Anything about repentance, faith, forgiveness, adoption? It's just plain enlightenment. They've been exposed to the gospel. Now, some scholars actually believe, as I was reading this, and it's not specifically in the text, but historically in the early church, um, not in the early church in Acts, but like the early church fathers in the first couple of centuries, thought that this whole idea of enlightenment, sometimes when a person was enlightened, um, they actually thought it could have meant that they actually experienced baptism. They could have even been baptized. Okay, The text doesn't say that, so we really don't know. So let me ask you a question. Does a pagan in the deep, dark jungles of Africa, has this person ever been enlightened? They've never received the light in the first place. Okay? So this person, this apostate, has been enlightened. They understand the facts of the gospel. If you were to go ask them a question, who is Jesus, they would be able to give you a dictionary definition. Jesus is the Son of God. They may even say Jesus died on the cross. They may even say he rose again. They may even say you have to have faith in Jesus. Does that make you saved? Just to know the facts, to be enlightened. Okay. Second benefit that he says is they have, number two, tasted the heavenly gift. Now, we really don't know what the heavenly gift is, but we may assume that it has something to do with Salvation, the gospel, they've tasted it. They've sampled it. They did not fully consume, digest, swallow. They just sampled him. They got enough, they got close enough to Jesus to try him out for a while, but were never fully regenerated. Can you conceive of something like that? Somebody that gets close enough to church close enough to Jesus. They may even know the lingo. They may have even tried some things out. That's why I don't like the statement, just try Jesus out. Try him out. Makes it sound like he's a dishwasher. If you don't like him after 30 days, you can return him. Do you quote unquote try Jesus out? If he's the Lord and Savior, we don't try Jesus out. What what does the Bible say? We repent of our sins and we believe in him and give our entire lives to him. Okay, so they had tasted something. This heavenly gift, they've tasted it. They, they'd experienced it in some measure, but they weren't truly saved. They weren't truly regenerated. They'd been enlightened. They'd been exposed to the gospel. They may have been around a worship service, been exposed to the things of church, of the gospel, but they only tasted it. Thirdly, now this is where it gets a little bit more difficult because we've got the third person of the Trinity here. What does it say? They were partakers or they were what? They shared in the Holy Spirit. This is the only time that Greek word shows up in connection with the Holy Spirit in the entire New Testament. It's a unique word. It doesn't mean like union or baptism or sealed. It really means they, 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 they had an association with the Holy Spirit. Now here's a question. Can you as a person be around the gifts of the Spirit and the demonstration of the Spirit and see things of the Spirit but never truly have the Spirit in you. You can have an association with the Spirit. 
you may even have, think about this, can somebody come to a worship service and be under conviction and have the shivers and have a very emotional experience and leave and never actually have the Holy Spirit? But be around the Holy Spirit, okay? It's kind of scary, isn't it? Because these things happen in church. It's not the pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa. They're exposed to the gospel. They've been enlightened to the gospel. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've actually been around the the workings of the Spirit. Okay? Number four. They tasted, that's the same word again, the goodness of what? The goodness of the Word of God. The goodness of the Word of God. In other words... They had probably been under good preaching and teaching. You guys know who um, George Whitfield was? One of the greatest evangelists of all time. He was from England in the late 1700s. He, he was part of the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards. He's a powerful evangelist. He would preach open air to like 50,000 people without a microphone. Um, he saw thousands get saved across England. <laughs> Thousands get saved across America. He came to America on numerous times, and he preached like he preached the gospel. And Ben Franklin used to go listen to um, George Whitfield. And everybody knew that Ben Franklin wasn't a Christian. He never claimed to be a Christian. He may have had a Bible or owned a Bible, but he never claimed to be a Christian. And they would say to him, Ben Franklin, why are you going to hear George Whitfield preach? Why are you going to listen to this guy when you don't believe what he says? You don't believe a word he says. Why are you going to listen to him? And Benjamin Franklin says, I don't believe a word he says, but he believes what he says, and it's powerful. So Ben Franklin was mesmerized by the preaching of George Whitfield, but didn't believe a word he said. There have been people that have come to this church that have told me in my office, I really like your preaching, but I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I like your preaching, but I'm never going to join your church because I don't want to become a Christian, but I like what you have to say because you have passion. So these people have sat under good teaching, good preaching. They may even be moved by good preaching, good teaching. They may have heard a good Bible study. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the the powers of the, of the, the things of God. They've been around the things of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the word of the of God. And then... This is even more scary. The last one. They tasted, what does it say? The powers of the age to come. If you go back to chapter 2, where we were a few weeks ago, verses 3 and 4, the word for miracles that were used back there is the same word used here for powers. So in other words, they had experienced supernatural miracles. They may have seen God do amazing, miraculous things. Now think about all of this in relation to the Exodus. What has he been doing all along? Has he not been comparing these people to the Exodus, that hard-hearted generation? Think about the words he's using here. Did not that generation in Exodus taste the heavenly gift? What was it? Manna. That came from heaven. Did they not receive the goodness of the word of God? The Ten Commandments from the mountain. Did they not see powerful signs and wonders? The Red Sea parting. But what did that generation do in the midst of all of that? 
they fell away. They rejected. And where did it take place? Was this among the pagans? Was this among the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Canaanites? It was in the wilderness among God's people that, all, that God did all these things in the Exodus generation. It was not that He was doing these things among the pagans. And so in the same way, I think what the writer saying here is, in the same thing, this, in the same way today, where do all of these things take place? In church and around Christian people. So think about the sin of apostasy. It's not rejecting Christ because you never heard about Him and you're living in pagan idolatry as an unreached people group who've never heard the gospel. That's not apostasy. Apostasy is, I've received the light. I've received the gospel. I've seen the working of the Holy Spirit. I've seen the gospel in action. I've seen miracles. I've heard good preaching. I've been to good Bible studies. I may have even gone on a mission trip. I may have even gone to VBS my entire life. But there comes a point in time where I repudiate all of that and fall away. Okay? Now, do we have biblical evidence of an apostate in the Bible? Not a pagan. Not a lost person that had never heard before, but an apostate. And I can think of three. The first is a man named Demas. And we don't know a lot about Demas except for what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.10. We find out earlier in Paul's writings that Demas was a traveling companion of Paul. He was part of Paul's ministry team. So you would think about it this way. Paul had a staff, a pastoral staff. Timothy, Silas, Barnabas. Demas was on pastoral staff with Paul. Okay, That's pretty good, right, to be on the pastoral staff with Paul as your, as your senior pastor? But listen to what he tells Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What did Demas do? He deserted. He walked away from the faith. And what was the reason why? He was in love with this present world. Isn't that an interesting terminology? He was in love with the world. So he showed all signs of, and who knows what he had done. The Bible doesn't record a lot about Demas. But if you're around Paul long enough, are you going to be enlightened? Are you going to taste the heavenly gift? Are you going to see the powers of the age to come? Are you going to be a partaker in the Holy Spirit? Are you going to see all that stuff with Paul? Yes, but then what's he going to do? He was too in love with this world that he deserted Paul. He walked away. He shipwrecked his, he made shipwreck of his faith. That's another terminology that Paul uses for an apostate. He uses this term, he made shipwreck of his faith. What does shipwreck mean? When you think about that image, what does it mean to be shipwrecked? You didn't make it to the shore. You biffed. You rammed. You, you, you came up short. You stopped. You didn't finish. Now, another example is a man named Simon Magus. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to Acts chapter 8. Keep your finger in Hebrews, but I want to show you this encounter with Simon Magus. This is in Acts chapter 8. 
And we'll, we'll read the whole passage because it's very interesting. There are some question marks about Simon Magus. The, the scripture does not come out outright and say he was an apostate, but you can read between the lines and what Peter tells him that we assume that he was probably an apostate. But let's read this story. You, you may have remembered when we preached this three or four years ago when I went through the book of Acts, but it's been a long time. So let's read this story about Simon the magician, okay? So let's pick up in verse 9, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, this is not David Copperfield pulling a rabbit out of his hat. The way the wording is used here is this is demonic stuff. He's doing magic through demonic means. And the people are mesmerized by what he's doing. And notice what he's doing. He's basically saying, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm this awesome man here in Samaria. Okay? Verse 12. But when they, the people, believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip comes along and starts preaching the gospel, and the the people that he had as followers, Simon, they stop listening to Simon and say, wait a minute, this is the gospel. They're getting converted. Okay, so people are getting saved under the preaching of the gospel. They're no longer listening to Simon, who's this magician. But notice what happens to Simon. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, that's a, that's a scary verse there, verse 13, because what we're going to see in just a moment. What does it say about Simon? He believed and was baptized. Now, <laughs> can you believe and be baptized and still not be a Christian? Depends on what type of belief we're talking about. If it's not true saving faith, If it's not true, authentic faith that saves, then all he did was give mental assent to the gospel and got dunked in water. There was nothing significant about it. But here you have a man who made a profession of faith. He said, I believe. He even got baptized. But what was going on? As he's he's like mesmerized with Philip. I thought I had great power. This guy's got even more power. So let me follow Philip around and see if I can get some of his mojo. That's basically what... Simon Magus wants. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So the delegation, Peter and John, come down from Jerusalem because the gospel spreading out of Jerusalem to Samaria. Not that Peter and John had to confer anything upon this and give their stamp of approval. It was just a way to bring a connection between the home church in Jerusalem and what was going on outside of Jerusalem that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the, whole, that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So what's he doing? I see you guys have some serious mojo, especially you, Peter. You've got something about you, Peter. Now, we know about Peter, right? He was a powerful. After, when he preached at Pentecost, God's power was on Peter. And he was, a, he was not his own power, but he was a man that could preach the gospel. And so there was something about Peter that Simon saw and said, Listen, Peter, I will pay you for your mojo. I'll pay you for your power. I'll pay you for your, for your quote-unquote abilities. Now, how do you think Peter's going to respond to that? I will give you the literal translation. 
Verse 19. Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, to hell with your money. It's literally what he says there. Okay, in the, in, in the literal, I mean the literal Greek. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So, Peter says to him in verse 20, May your silver perish with you. Literally means go to hell. In other words, one translation says it this way, To hell with you and your money. Notice what Peter says. You have no part or lot in this matter. Now what does it mean? Is he saying you don't have any part of the church? Is he saying you're not a Christian? Is he saying you have no business to ask this request? We don't know. But Peter gets in his face and said, you, you really have no business asking this. The one thing we do know from this passage is this. What does Peter say to him? The only thing that we do know. He says, you're not right before God, and you need to repent of the wickedness in your heart. Verse 21 you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. If possible. And notice what he says. You're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Why would Peter say you're in the bond of iniquity? You're in the, you're in the gall of bitterness. It goes back to what was often used in the Old Testament to describe idolatry. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, Moses is preaching to them before they cross over into the promised land. And Moses says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So when these words, bitterness, the gall of bitterness are used in the Bible. It almost always deals with stubborn idolatry or deep-seated sin that leads to idolatry. So here's Simon. He's jealous of the disciples. He wants to buy the disciples. And what does Peter say? There's an interesting word in verse 22. Did you catch it? Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven. What's Peter saying there? If possible, what does that mean? It may or may not happen. Now, we're left with the tension of what to think about Simon Magus. Because all he does is he never repents. We never see it. Do you see evidence of repentance here? Do you see evidence of confession? What's the one thing that he says to Peter? You pray for me that the Lord may not have these things happen to me. Does he take personal responsibility? 
He goes directly to Peter and says, Peter, you pray for me. You could say he's the first Catholic. He's going to a priest. Yeah, he's like Pharaoh. He's going to another man to try to absolve him of guilt as opposed to going directly to Jesus. And here's the tension. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't say, was he lost or saved? Did he ever repent? My personal opinion is this. I think that the, the tension here is meant to leave us with the fact that he professed faith in Christ, got baptized, but was never saved. And we have an example of that. The early church said this about him. Simon is what the early church said about him. Justin Martyr and Irenaeus called him the father of heretics. And he had a reputation that he went around with a prostitute named Helena. So basically, history shows us the rest of his life he hung around with a prostitute. Didn't show any signs of repentance. And the early church fathers, two big-time early church fathers, called him the father of heretics. So here's the thing about, and I've used this terminology before, he was a professor of faith, but not a possessor of faith. See the big difference between those? We've talked about that a lot. It's one thing to profess faith. It's another thing to possess faith. He professed, but he did not possess. So you've got Demas, you've got Simon Magus, but the most famous example you've got to look at is Judas. He's the greatest example. The Bible calls him the son of perdition. Did he preach the gospel? Yes. Did he perform miracles? Yes. Did he cast out demons? Yes. But he deliberately and willfully rejected Christ and was forever doomed to eternal hell. Okay? So all those five things that the writer of Hebrews says, Judas had experienced. Go back to Hebrews for a minute. What, did, what, did, um, what were those five things? Had Judas been enlightened? Yeah, he tasted the heavenly gift. Had he shared in the Holy Spirit? Had he, t- had he tasted the goodness of the Word of God? Had he tasted the powers of the age of come to come? Think about it. My goodness, what, who did Judas see in the flesh? Jesus. And not from a distance. He was part of the twelve. And Jesus sent his disciples out two by two to do ministry. So he was trained, he was taught, he lived life with Jesus, he was around the Lord in the flesh, and yet he still fell away. Now you may ask, this is not in your notes, but you may ask, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Well, what do we see about Peter? At the end of John, he repents, he confesses his sin, and he's restored. We never see that with Judas. He's never restored He's never, he basically hangs himself. Now, here's, let's go back to the text in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Because what does the word say? It is impossible. It doesn't say it's unlikely. It's improbable. It may or may not happen. What does it say? It is impossible. Now, let me just teach you a little bit of Greek here. In the Greek language, when you want to give emphasis to something, you usually put that word at the beginning of the sentence. What's the first word in this entire sentence? Impossible. 
So the writer is drawing our attention to the fact that this is a severe warning of the impossibility. The impossibility of what? Okay, after he lists those five benefits, go down to verse 6. It is impossible for all those things to have happened, verse 6, and then to have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So here's here's the point. It's impossible if someone has fallen away to do what? For them to repent. And what did we say earlier? If there's no repentance, there is no... So what's he really saying here? There is a possibility, not just a possibility... Or a probability, it will happen that for someone to have fallen away, there comes a point in time, and we don't know that. We can't look into a person's heart. We don't have the inner workings of, of, of God here. All we have is a scripture to look at as a truth that if somebody does fall away, it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. Okay? Now, before you get scared with that, I want to talk to you about falling away. Does he mention any specific sin there in verse 6? Does he say if they commit adultery, if they commit murder, if they lie, if they steal, if they fornicate? What's the word he uses? If they have, what's the, the term? Fallen away. Okay? The word fallen away is in a tense purposely used in the Greek text that means a decisive, deliberate, willful act of rejection. So it's not this. If I have a moment of weakness and I sin big time by having an affair on my wife... I can, I'm going to be lost forever. That's not what he's saying. Or if in a moment of weakness, I get drunk at a party and I go out and I um, drive. Let's talk about you know, somebody in our church who, we, who's confessed it in front of the church and it's no, no secret, like Cody. Okay? Cody, in a moment of weakness, went out to a party, got drunk, drove and hit a um, light pole and totaled his car and, and got arrested and is now paying. You know, Does that mean that he's never going to be saved or he can never be brought back to repentance? No, he has repented of that. So it's not individual sins that we're talking about here. We're talking about this big category called falling away, which means a decisive, deliberate, actual turning away from Christ, a rejecting of Christ, saying basically, I don't want anything to do with Christ at all. I've dug my heels in the sand. My neck is stiff. I am stubborn. I am doing this knowingly. I am doing this willfully. I am doing this repeatedly. I am doing this stubbornly. And it's a prolonged rejection of Christ. It's the falling away. Now, here's the hard part about this verse. Don't ask me when that point comes. We're not given a time frame here. So there may be a person that we look at their life and we say, man, they, they sure are. They look like they're falling away because they are backsliding majorly. 
As humans, we do not have the power of perception. We do not have the Holy Spirit, um, you know, omniscience to look at them and say they are an apostate. We look at them and we say, all we can say is they've professed faith in Christ and now they're not. And they could be in a period of extreme backsliding and God could bring them to repentance. Or God may not. The problem is we don't know when that point is hit. So we still pray for that person to be brought to repentance because that's the only way they're going to be saved anyways if they repent. Now, why is apostasy so damning? Notice what the writer says there in verse 6. It's impossible if they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since. Here's the, here's the sense. Here's what they're doing. In rejecting, in falling away, here's what they're doing. They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now let's just stop and talk about this. Is Jesus being crucified again? When Every time a person falls away, is Jesus being crucified again, literally? No, He's already been crucified once. So what is the writer saying here? He's basically saying... It's a slap in the face to the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And what they're basically saying is, when you fall away, when you've put yourself in this position of never being able to repent, you are like the person in the crowd that mocked Jesus and yelled, crucify him, and you had glee in your heart when you did it. Okay? In other words, what this is, this falling away, this rejection is the worst treatment of Jesus. An apostate basically says, basically what you're saying is, when you're crucifying the Son again and holding Him up to contempt, basically you're saying this, I hate what Jesus did on the cross. I think it's the most stupid thing in the world. In a sense, the cause of shame of Jesus on the cross is, is being reenacted. All that Jesus experienced in His shame on the cross that person is thinking up and saying, I'm glad that happened to Jesus because I hate him and I hate what he did. That's what an apostate says. And when you've gotten to that point where it's deliberate, it's prolonged, it's um, stubborn, the Bible here says you've put your place, you've, you've put yourself in an impossibility. It is impossible for you to be brought back to repentance because you have fallen away so far. Okay? Now, what he's going to do here is give us an illustration. But let me give you a, let me give you a John Piper illustration, okay? This, is, this comes from John Piper. It's not from me. Um, this, is why, this is the way he describes an apostate. I'll, I'll just read it. He says, They're like the buzzard who spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating on the river. He lands on the piece of ice and begins to eat. And, and the buzzard knows that it's dangerous because the, flaw, the falls are just ahead. He's going to go over the falls. And he looks at his wings and he says to himself, Hey, I've got wings. I'm a buzzard. I can, I can fly away to safety whenever I need to. And he just keeps going on eating. Just before the ice goes over the falls, he spreads his wings to fly, but his claws are frozen in the ice and there's no escape neither in this age nor in the age to come. So what he's saying is, 
there's this arrogance that you have dug your claws in so deep that basically you can't get out. You're going over the cliff. That's what an apostate is. So here's, here's the question. How do we respond to this teaching? This is a hard teaching. There's two responses, okay? Number one, I think the writer's saying this to his church. And those, those Jews who were living in Rome who were tempted to go back to Judaism, he's saying this, for those that are religious and playing games at being a Christian are in essence faking it, it should terrify you to run to Christ right now for forgiveness and repent and trust in Him alone for salvation. This is a warning for people who are playing around to repent. And here's the second thing that's good news. The great promise from Scripture is that we find no instance of a person genuinely asking for forgiveness that God does not forgive them. So don't ask me when a person gets to the point where they've moved from like probable to impossible. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us when that point is. The Bible has not given us as humans omniscience to look into a person's heart and pronounce them an apostate. So I don't know. Only God knows. But we have a verse here that says it's impossible for a person, if they've fallen away, to be brought back to repentance because they're basically rejecting, falling away, slapping Christ in the face and saying, I hate Jesus and everything that the cross stands for. Yes. somebody who's in that state knows enough to acknowledge it are they hmm. they know that they know that they're denying Christ oh, yes. even though they're living yes. like they are not there's there's a that's a great question there, there's let me see, let me make sure i understand your question is a does an apostate who has fallen away do they know they're faking it is that kind of your question yeah sort of enough enough to know they repent. And I would say if they've reached that state of impossibility, their heart has become so hardened that they will never want to repent because they've just gotten to the point where they have prolongedly hated Jesus. So it's not a blindness, it's a willfulness. It's a willfulness. It's not an ignorance. Like for example, let me give you a perfect example. This could also be called I didn't want to go down this track, but this could also be called blast. No, that's a good point. This also could be called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because what does the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit say? All sins are forgiven except for one. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin. Here he's saying it's impossible to repent. I see these as almost the same thing. Okay? But here's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I actually had a lady in our church, probably about seven, eight, nine years ago, call me up on the phone in tears. And she was weeping. And she said, Pastor Sean, I think I may have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I am so distraught. And I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Have I done it? And I stopped and I said, let me just encourage you. The very fact that you're calling me, the very fact that you're concerned, the very fact that you're grieved, the very fact that you're broken and wanting help shows me you haven't committed it. Because if you had committed it, you would care less. So the apostate could care less. 
They're not under conviction. They're not broken. They're, they're, it's a willful hardness, not an ignorance or a blindness. Does, does that answer your question? Yeah. for making the choices they were making. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart. You can't scream at a blind man for not being able to see. Yes. So, but I don't know if they were apostate or not. Sure. And that's the hard thing. We, we, We look at a person's life, and all we can do is look at their life and say, it's in, yeah, it's in shambles. Okay. So we look at a person and say, okay, there's two things. We look at a person and we say, okay, you're a pagan, you're acting like a pagan. Or we look at a person and say, you're professing faith in Christ, but you're acting like you're not. So you've got to determine which, which person you're talking Is it a person who's professed faith in Christ, says they're a Christian, has, you know, aligns himself with Christianity and is living like they're not? We don't know if they're an apostate. They could be in a period of extreme disobedience. They could be in a period of extreme backsliding. And you're doing the right thing by praying for them. But if they're truly saved, and we'll find this out later on in Hebrews, God will discipline them. God will do something in their life to bring them back to repentance, and it may be painful. It's always painful. But on the flip side, if they're truly apostate, He won't discipline them. They will experience the full punishment of just walk, of just rejecting Him. Okay, so it's tough because we don't have omniscience like God to look into a person's heart and say, "Oh, they're an apostate. They're saved. They're not saved. They're backsliding." All we can see is the outward. All we can see is the behavior, and say, "That concerns me." We don't know the end of the story. We believe in God's sovereign power. To so here's the thing: if a person's going to repent, who has to do it? They have to do it, but why do they do it? Because God does it. So your only hope in praying for a person is that God the Holy Spirit would bring them to a point of brokenness and repentance. And if they're really, really far away, their only hope is not that one day they're just going to wake up and say, you know, like the prodigal son, what did it say? He came to himself and he got up and he went back home. Now, why did he come to himself? I, the scripture doesn't say, but we can look at the rest of the scripture and say, probably the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and said, you're living in a pigsty, go back home. And so God will do that. Any other questions before we move on? This is a hard topic. I know it's a hard topic. All right. Now, he's going to give a parable from agriculture. Oftentimes, there are parables from agriculture that help us understand this reality. So look at verses 7 and 8. What does he say? For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and does what? Produces a crop useful, a, produces a useful crop for the sake of those who it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Okay. So what's the imagery? It's a, there's rain coming down. It's a good crop. It's a good harvest. It's useful. There's fruit. It's good fruit. It's useful fruit. It receives the blessing of God. Second illustration. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, in other words, there's no fruit. It's just thorns and thistles. What does he say? It's worthless. It's near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So let me give you the two responses here. That he sent. Basically, let me tell you what these metaphors mean. Number one, the truly saved person will receive the word of the gospel 
It will take root in their soul. They will produce fruit that lasts and receive the eternal blessing of God. Now, we don't have time to go there, but if you go to the parable of the soils, what do we find out? Do we see that truth? We see that truth in the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower. So a truly saved person is going to what? They're going to receive it like the land receives the rain. They're going to drink the rain. It's going to seep down low. It's going to go down into their heart, and it's going to produce a crop. There's going to be fruit, and it's going to be fruit that lasts. It's going to be fruit that's, that's, that's uh, useful, and it's going to receive the blessing from God. On the flip side, the apostate person will reject the truth. They will not bear fruit. They'll just bear thorns and thistles, and they will prove to be worthless, and in the end they will suffer the fires of hell. Okay, now, here's the problem. At this point, the pastor that's preaching the sermon in Hebrews knows, just like I know right now, this is some heavy stuff. This is some deep stuff. This is some scary stuff. So as a good pastor, he says, now listen, I'm going to shift gears here, and I'm going to change the subject, and I'm going to give you a word of encouragement. Okay, so he's going to shift gears, and he's going to give a needed word of encouragement. So we're going to look at part two here tonight, a needed word of encouragement in verses 9 through 12. Okay, heavy, 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 heavy. And then he's going to flip and say, I know it's heavy, but I'm going to encourage you. Okay, so here's where he goes. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to what? Salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so... Look at verse 9. Notice what the writer does in verse 9. He makes a shift. What does he say? I've been talking about they, those, these apostates, these people that are falling away. But notice what he says. But in your case, he switches back to you. And what does he call them? Beloved, my friends. He says, listen, if you're truly a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. If you're truly a Christian, you don't have to worry about falling away. If you're truly a Christian, you won't become apostate. I'm speaking about better things, things that belong to your salvation. Those five things that we just listed, they're not true of you. As a Christian, you don't just get enlightened. You don't just taste the heavenly gift. You don't just share in the Holy Spirit. You don't just see miracles, taste the Word of God. You actually are truly, soundly saved. In other words, according to the metaphor, you as a Christian have drunk in the gospel. It has gone deep into your soul, and it's producing fruit. And he's confident of that. So here's the question. Why did the author give such a strong warning about apostasy? Two reasons. And it's always the two reasons to rattle false comforts, but to bring hope to true believers. If apostasy is is defined as those who had once openly identified with Christ and then over time stubbornly rejected Him, then what are some of the marks of a true 
believer? That's that's the flip side of the question. What are the marks of a true believer? Notice what he says in verse 9. What does he say? I am convinced. I'm convinced of better things for you, beloved. I feel sure of better things. That word means I'm firmly convicted. I'm firmly convicted that you are saved. Why? Because in relation to what I've just said about the trees and fruits and thistles, you're good soil. I'm positive that you're a Christian because guess what, Hebrew Christians? I see you bearing fruit. There's positive evidence that you're saved. And I want to encourage you in that positive evidence I see. I'm going to explain to you evidences of grace I see in your life as a Christian. And I want to encourage you that you're truly saved. So here's the question we've got to ask. Okay, what does it look like in the life of a Christian to be saved? We answered the question when I first started, right? We first started tonight. What were the first opening questions? What does it mean to be saved? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. What should a true Christian produce then in their life? What do we say? Fruit. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to give three descriptions of true believers who produce fruit. Now, there's more than this in the whole, when you look at the whole Bible, but for the case of this particular passage of Scripture, he's going to give three. So how do you know you're a true Christian? Well, number one, have you repented and believed in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you have faith in Christ? Do, do you know that you are a sinner and you need Jesus? That's number one. But number two, are you bearing fruit? Then you've got to ask the question, what kind of fruit are you bearing? So let's look at these three things that he says are evidences that he's, he's firmly convinced of. He's like, I'm sure of better things. I know you're saved. And here's how I know you're saved. I see these three things in your life. So we need to pay attention to these three things and say, are these th- three things in my life? Not that we're perfect in these, but are these things evident? Are these things consistent? Do these things show up in my life? And if they are not consistently in my life, I may ask the question, either I need to repent and ask God to grow me in these areas, or maybe I'm not truly saved. So let's look at number one. A true Christian ministers to others in love. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. He says, God's not going to forget your work of love. You're, you're loving other believers. You're serving the saints. You are ministering to the saints in love. And so basically what he's saying is God rewards the faithful ministry of loving one another in the church. So huge, huge, huge evidence of a Christian. Do you love other Christians in meaningful, concrete, tangible ways? Do you know what John says is a mark of a Christian? Notice what he said, John, 1 John 4. Remember I said a few weeks ago, 1 John gives you tests to see if you're truly a Christian. 1 John 4, 7-8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has what? Been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not 
Love does not know God because God is love. Evidence that you've been born again, evidence that you know God is that you love one another. It's just that simple. Now we can flesh that out in all the different ways that the New Testament talks about. But at the very core of our being as Christians, are we genuinely showing love? What did Jesus say? They will know we are Christians by our bumper stickers. (laughs) By how loud Caleb is in our car. (laughs) By how big my Bible is. They will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I want you to pay close attention to what he says because this, this is pretty radical. When I read this and I started studying this, I got very convicted. Look at the way he words it. Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. What in the world does he mean by that? Literally, it says, the love that you have shown for the name. So here's the principle. Their work of love was actually loving His name. In other words, the way we treat others as brothers, sisters in Christ is really the way we treat Jesus. So to the extent that we're not loving one another is to the extent that we're not loving Jesus. And to the extent that we are loving one another, it's to the extent that we're loving Jesus. Have you ever thought of your love for another Christian as an act of worship and how you love Jesus? I think if we looked at it that way, we'd have more love going on in church. Because it would be seen as an act of worship to Jesus first. What did Jesus say in Matthew 25? Matthew 25, 44 through 46 They will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Whatever you did for the least of these, you've done it to me. So let's just stop and let that sink in. One of the... Telltale evidences of an authentic Christian is you love other Christians in a way that shows that you love Jesus in His name. Now, does that mean you're perfect? Does that mean that you never get like you, you never get mad, or you you know that you that you don't have bad relationships from time to time? What does it mean? It means that you are being intentional about loving others. And ultimately, it's a demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit, is it? We, we talked about that earlier. What's the, I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, there's, there's, there's nine, right, aspects. But what's the first? Love. Everything starts with love. It's the greatest commandment. Love God, love others. So he says, listen, Hebrews, I'm sure that you're Christians. I'm positive you're Christians. I'm positive that you guys are bearing fruit that lasts because, number one, you are loving each other. God's not going to overlook the work and love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. You're serving one another. You're loving one another. You're ministering to one another. So a true Christian serves, loves, and ministers to one another in the body of Christ. Okay, that's, that's number one, evidence. Okay, Number two, evidence of a Christian. 
He says, here's the second thing. A true Christian remains diligent in hope until Christ returns. What does he say in verse 11? He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness or diligence to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, in our culture, what, how do we use the word hope? I hope the Broncos don't biff this week and actually have a good <laughs> offense and don't win because of just their defense. I hope that check comes in the mail. I hope he returns my phone call. The way we use hope in our context is what? I'm not really sure it's going to happen. I kind of hope it happens. I'm not that sure, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm kind of just hoping. Is that Christian hope? No. Christian hope is not wishful thinking, but it is a solid assurance that banks everything on Christ's return. That, that Greek word there for full assurance really means complete certainty, full conviction. It's not shallow. So let me ask you a question. Has Jesus returned yet? When will we never have to have hope? When He returns, we will not have to worry about having hope because our hope will be realized. But until He returns, what do we have to practice? Hope. And that's not just, I hope He comes back. No, it's my life is banking on the fact that as a Christian, I can live with confidence to know that no matter what happens to me, Christ is coming back for me. And until that day, my eyes are on Him, my hope is in Him, He's my assurance, He's my confidence, I put all my hope in Him. I don't put hope in my, in my life, I don't put hope in my resources, I don't put hope in my 401k, I don't put hope in anything, my hope is in Jesus. Now I want you to notice how He makes it very individual and personal. What does He say there? We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. It's one thing to say, hey, y'all, show some hope. It's another thing for him to say, hey, I want each one of you by name to show hope. Because think about it. If all of us individually are showing hope, collectively we're having greater hope, aren't we? Isn't it hard to have hope by yourself? Now, when you have hope by yourself, you're supposed to have hope by yourself. But if you know that the person next to you has hope and the other person has hope and we all come together and we all have hope individually, we have this big collective hope and it, and it strengthens us until Christ comes back. Okay? So number one, consistent loving one another. Number two, consistent hoping in Christ until the end. And then number three, he says this, a true Christian imitates the faithful patience of other believers who've gone ahead. Look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. He kind of rounds out that word. Remember back in 5.11? He says, I have a lot to tell you about, but you're sluggish of hearing. He rounds that out. He says, you may not be sluggish, but what? Does your say imitators? Imitators of those who through faith and impatient endurance or impatience inherit the promises. So an authentic Christian is this. You're not sluggish. You're not lazy. You're not unresponsive to God's word. And said, you imitate the faith of others 
Now, next week we're going to get to this. The rest of chapter 6 is about Abraham. He says, you need, to have, you need to imitate Abraham's faith. And then when we get to chapter 11, we'll see the heroes of the faith. So let me ask you a question. Is there a person in the Bible or a person in your life that's gone ahead of you that is worthy of imitating their faith? Now, if you don't have somebody in your life, you can look at somebody in the Bible. Is there, and maybe we can just talk about this tonight, is there somebody in your life, they may still be alive, but when I say ahead of you, that means they're either older than you or they're older than you in the faith. Okay? Is there somebody in your life right now that is worth imitating because they are faithful? And I'd like to know who those, I mean, let's just talk about that. You, you can tell me who their name is if you want, but I want to know why are they worth imitating? What is it about them that makes you want to imitate their faith? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's nothing wrong with imitating a faithful person because the Bible gives us permission to do that. Were you raising your hand, Bill? Okay, well, I thought you were raising your hand back there. I'm going to come back here so we can. A man by the name of Dr. Holmes. Okay. He was a teacher at Southwest Baptist. I didn't have him as a teacher, but went with him on a mission trip. And uh, what got me about him, we were driving, I was doing the driving, um, he was sitting right next to me. The man was 80 years old, had gone through two strokes, heart attacks, you know, could, could barely move, but every day in his quiet time, he memorized scripture. He had a deck of cards that he kept, and he'd pull out his deck of cards, and he worked on his scripture every day. Eight years old, still working on his on the scripture. So Virginia Messick. She's had so many struggles in her life, struggled financially, struggled with marriage, never did her faith waver even through her dying days. Mm -hmm. She's just, mm -hmm. just an icon to me as, as a faithful person in Christ. As the one who, who has done, who did her funeral and was there <coughs> in her last moments, she was faithful to the very yeah. end. Mm -hmm. So, amen. Somebody else, somebody that you want to imitate their faith and why? Janae. There's two ladies in this church that have brought me a long ways. Miss Lori over there and Paula. I couldn't have asked for two better friends or Christian women to accept me and 
Love me. Um, let me be a part of their life. Amen. So that we're even talking about somebody in the same room. So anybody else want to share somebody who's who they want you know this, you want to imitate their faith and why? What's specific in this passage of scripture? What are, what are we to imitate? Their faith and their what? Patience. Their faith and their patience. And really the way that's worded in the original language really means faithful patience. It's, it's really kind of one idea there, that they're faithful in their patience, they're patient in their faith. It's, it's kind of tied together. It's a faithful patience. Anybody, want to, anybody else want to share? Yes, Jerry. Uh, I'm going to make it a couple. Everett and Dorothy Duncan. Okay. Yeah. Because they always showed their love for each other their love for God. Mm-hmm. They always went out of their way to help someone if they needed the help. Mm-hmm. Yep. They're very generous to us as a church and the purchase of this land. And I know Lori worked with them for a long time at the Bible Lighthouse. And... Oh, Jenny, I'm sorry. Yes. No, no. Oh, oh, you worked for them too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought you had something to share too. Okay. No. Okay, good. Anybody else? There's your opportunity to say, hey, there's somebody in my life that I just want to imitate their faith because they are worth imitating. Maybe it's a Bible character. Is there a particular Bible character that you guys say, I want to, that's the person I want to imitate their faith? I know for me it's Moses. You get that many people yelling at you. Three million people that you got to lead and preach to. Not that we have three million, we just have 300. But um, it's nothing like what Moses had. No, no. All right. Well, let's, let's kind of look at the conclusion here. He gives us these three things and says an authentic Christian, not authentic Christian, one who's truly saved, number one, consistently loves others as a way to serve Christ himself. Number two, consistently hopes to the end. Notice the word I put consistently in front of each of those. And number three, consistently imitates the faith of others. Now, I hope you just jumped out on the page for you here. Do you see the overarching three Christian virtues? Faith, hope, and love. But they're in reverse order. It's love, hope, and faith. When you look all through the scriptures, what are the three top virtues of the Christian life? Faith, hope, and love. And he gives it to us right here. It's just a different way of saying it. So a Christian consistently loves, consistently has hope, and consistently has faith. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Okay? So here's the conclusion. Here's the bottom line of this section we've looked at tonight. There's two two tracks. Apostates should be are, not area. Apostates are those who rebelliously, persistently, and arrogantly denied Jesus after having made a profession of faith. Their falling away proves that they were not genuinely saved in the first place. The damning danger of apostasy is that it is impossible to repent and come to Christ. That's the teaching. On the other hand, genuine believers are those who consistently, persistently, and humbly love others, serve others, and demonstrate lasting fruit. That's what he's saying in this passage of Scripture. 
So it's a warning to the apostate. It's a word of encouragement to the true Christian. And it's a way for us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So are there any questions on that tonight? I know we're done a little bit early, but I thought that was probably enough that you could handle. That's pretty, pretty. Any questions tonight or, or issues? It's one of those things that makes you think. And so I don't want, I mean, there's, there's a danger here. You can go home thinking, man, I'm not saved. And part of me would say that's a good thing. But part of me would say if you're truly a Christian, you really need to not worry about that if you, if you really are saved. So, so I just pray that you spend time with the Holy Spirit and let Him confirm these things in your heart. Um, because you, I think you know if you know. I don't think anybody in here tonight's an apostate because if you were an apostate, you wouldn't be at a Bible study. Okay? okay? At least you wouldn't stay. But look at, the, look at the progression, guys. What did he say? You drift. How did it start in Hebrews? You drift. You harden your heart. And then you apostatize. I don't know of anybody that wakes up in one morning and says, today is the day I'm going to commit apostasy. It doesn't happen that way, does it? It happens with, I'm going to drift here. I'm going to make a compromise here. I'm going to do this here. I'm going to harden my heart here. I'm going to be unresponsive here. I'm not going to repent here. And pretty soon, you're over here where you're in a position where now you're on the track to apostasy. But it happened over a progression. So the real issue is when you start to drift, that's when you need to catch. Catch it when you start to drift. And all through Hebrews, he's saying, get back to Jesus. Get back to your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. When you're tempted to drift, get back to Jesus. And he also talks about accountability. Get yourself encouragement. Get yourself accountability. Be part of the local church.